program is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views expressed are those of the panelists and not necessarily those of Sengents, Glamour Connection, Van Garrett Media, their respective management, contractors, or employees. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media. Welcome to the Share Your Hotness Podcast. Share your hotness. Now, here's your host, Lita Green. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with your host, Lita Green, and my guest, Sandra Grace. Now, Sandra and I met many, many years ago, and she's one of those people that have said things at the right time when I needed it and saw things in me that you, she is one of those people that I credit with helping me become the out there person that I am. So it's a huge honor to me to have one of my mentors, Sandra Grace, on this episode. Sandra, welcome. Thank you, Lita, so much for having me on your podcast today. What a, what a gift. You are always you. so gracious. Just before we were going, you were like, thank you for this opportunity. I'm like, no, Sandra. I love you. <laughs> no, it's like, and I'm reaching out to hug her. So for those who can't watch, because it's just the two of us that can see what's happening right now. So uh, Sandra, I've gotten bits and pieces of your life story over the years. And so I wanted there to be enough listeners to hear this because we, you know, we've been growing and that's awesome. I even have listeners in England. Um, so I am excited to kind of hear the story. I know the basics that you grew up in extreme poverty and you have made a killer, awesome life for yourself without, I mean, it's just a story of resiliency. And you reminded me that you actually do resilience coaching and you would be an excellent expert on that because you've done it again and again and again. So I could ask you a ton of questions, but let's just start with your, where where did you come from? How did you become you? Just let's do it. <laughs> well, my my father was actually in the Air Force and uh, I was born in Chateauroux, France. And my parents came back to the States when I was just a baby. I was about, I think, 13 months old. And um, the reason that, I mean, you know, Lita, it's really interesting. Uh, we were all poor. We just didn't know we were poor. You know what I'm saying? It was you know, we, we had no idea that, that people had extravagant lives. You know, we, we never saw the base commander or anything like that. My father grew up as a, uh, as a, as a farmer's kid, you know, and they farm cotton and, and corn and okra and uh, not too many tomatoes, but you know, some, but I mean, you know, just the main staples. And uh, if you live in the South, because I never had okra until I was an adult. <laughs> well, now they consider it a delicacy in really high-end uh, uh, restaurants. It really makes me laugh. But anyway, yeah. um, my my mother became an alcoholic with her first drink. Uh -huh. And my childhood, I was her... They say that when there is... Both of my parents basically were alcoholics. But my mother... Um, I was my mother's like person who she vented all of her anger on. So there was, you know, I, I mean, I thought every kid got a, 
a spanking or a beating every day when they got home from school. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a best friend, her name was Linda Graham. And I asked her one time, I said, do you get a whipping every day when you come home from school? And she said, yeah, almost every day. She goes, it depends on whether you and I get in a fight and we tear up our dresses or not. <laughs> and I was like, I thought that was interesting. But, um, but it part of this perspective that everyone gets, everyone gets a whooping. Yeah. Everybody gets a whooping. And, um, my parents, my, my dad is, a, was a veteran of three wars and five campaigns. He turned 17 years old on the flight line in uh, the South Pacific. Wow. Uh, he was in Korea and then he did three tours in Vietnam. And when he accepted his last tour in Vietnam, we moved back to Louisiana. My mom had a great job. Um, we, we lived on base. We were in a great school. But when we moved back to Louisiana, that's when my mother became an alcoholic. I mean, she just, I mean, one night she just got up in the middle of the night and started drinking and she just stayed drunk literally for the next 20 years. Wow. But when I, when I turned 14, my, well, actually my parents separated uh, when, when I was nine and they divorced when I was 10. And um, I, I ended up having to live with my mom. And because my dad's girlfriend didn't like me very much. And because I told on her constantly about how she had men over when he was gone and all this other stuff. <laughs> anyway, I was a tattletale. I can't, I can't lie. I you had sass then too. <laughs> oh, honey, let me tell you. <laughs> And uh, she slapped me and I'd slap her back. And I mean, then the hell would be on. Because I told you, like, you're not my mom. <laughs> like, you're not going to do this to me. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we were always told she was the babysitter. We didn't know that she was my dad's girlfriend. I mean, we all knew it, but it wasn't publicized, you, so to you speak. You played along with the story. Yeah. So one night in the middle of the night, my mother comes and gets me and she takes me with her. Now, Imagine my mom is a full, she's a fully functional alcoholic. I mean, she leaves her job at five o'clock and by five ten she's drinking. Wow. And um, it was really weird. And, and I guess this is actually a syndrome that happens with women alcoholics is that their daughters become their rivals. Interesting. Yeah. So it's very I, interesting when you think about how at base we women you know, at our, you know, tribalistic instincts from, you know, our genetics are in competition with each other. Exactly. That when she gets in a place of, I don't even know what to call that vulnerability or not cognitively thinking through things. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And so my uncle, what we used to go down to my uncle's every weekend and he had a friend who, you know, and my uncle is, was a pedophile and this man was a pedophile. And this man just thought that he just had to have me like no oh. matter what. And my mother was behind on her car payments. Oh no. And they were getting ready to repossess her car. So my mother sold me to him oh. for $2,700. Oh. And he took me out into the woods and I mean, he, at, he, I thought he was just taking me home to my uncle's house, but when he pulled off into the woods, I thought, well, you know, maybe he's got to take, go to the bathroom or something. And you're like 11. At I this was time? 14, 14. I was 14 at the time. Mm. 
And anyway, he came around to my side of the car, drug me out of the car, beat the bloody crap out of me and raped me. And that went on for like about three or four hours, actually. Oh, and then when we got to my uncle's house, he literally just kicked me out of the car. And, you know, I went home. Nobody was there because they were still at this big party for my mom. It was, and they it was all her knew what was happening. No. Well, my uncle knew and my mom knew. I don't know how many other people knew. I, I, In other words, I, the yeah. adults that were supposed to protect you. Exactly. Knew what was and happening. It, Right. So about five o'clock that morning, my mom and they all came in walking in and I was sitting there, you know, beaten, bruised, bloody. And um, my mom looked at me and she goes, well, you better get used to it because this is what life is like. And um, I, I, I knew that I'd been raped. And of course, back then there weren't all these great shows like you know, special victims unit and all that kind of stuff to give you the information, like don't take a shower, don't, you know, all these kind of things. But three months later, my mom comes to me and she says, well, I noticed you haven't had your period yet. I said, yeah, you're right. I haven't. And um, she said, we're taking you to the doctor. Well, of course the, the, the results were that I was pregnant Mm. and my mom wrote this man a letter and said, let me give you three choices. Your first choice is, is to marry my daughter. The second choice is Mm-mm. I'm going to charge you with statutory rape. And the third <laughs> choice is, is that I'll tell my, my ex-husband and he'll kill you. So that was kind of like, you know, well, like, what would you choose if you Well, were- and then he could have been like, I gave you money, but of course then she'd be in trouble for selling her kid. I mean, ah, just, I don't think she ever even thought about that Lita. Oh, okay. I don't think that ever crossed her mind. And and cognitive functioning was compromised by all the drinks. So well, exactly. Oh. So um I went so I I went through a year of pure hell, beatings, multiple beatings, being tied up in a closet. And so he your mom had you marry him. Yeah, absolutely. So he chose to marry me. Sorry, left that little part out. Yeah, no, I, I knew a little bit of the story, so I could. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so oh. like I said, I went through a year of pure torture. I mean, and he would lose at a poker game and give me to his friends. Um, oh. During my pregnancy, when I was seven months pregnant, I ended up in the hosti- hospital with uh, 181 stitches in my rectum from being raped by three men that he had lost to to in a card game Uh, and i actually ended up in the hospital and they the doctor who i love my doctor he was he was trying to protect me as best he could because when we would call when i would call the sheriff's department uh to come in and help me they would come out there and say well this is a federal matter because he's in the navy and then the na- and then when the MPs and the Navy police would come, they would say, no, 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 this is a domestic matter. And, you know, back in 1969, there were no child rape laws. There were no, there were no laws really? for young women whatsoever to protect them. 1969, there 1969, were no. 1969, exactly. Oh, this, this hurts my heart. Well, th- actually it was 1968. So, yeah, yeah. I mean. 
imagine, you know, the nowhere to turn. Yeah, no, I mean, nowhere, nowhere. Because it also in the state of Mississippi, if your husband is over the age of 18, he is also your legal guardian. (laughs) Yeah. So that makes it even more complicated. Uh Well, it just so it, it just so happens that a year later, um, he, he actually deserted the Navy, came home because he was going to kill me because he had decided that if he couldn't have me, if he had to be away at sea, he was so jealous and so afraid that I would take up with somebody else that he was going to come home and kill me and the baby. And that turned in, I, I don't, I'm not going to go into all the details, but I ended up killing him instead. Which seems fair. Well, yes. And the judge and the, and the court did look at it that way. Louisiana is still under um, provincial law. So they actually made a motion to quash and released me. So um, here I am now, 15 years old. I have a nine-month-old child. Yeah. And what am I going to do? And you've had to deal with the extreme trauma including exactly. killing someone yeah which as justified as it is is still a trauma oh my god putting it mildly yes yeah i mean you know, the, the night the night that they arrested me i i i reached out to god and i just you know i i i feel like god is like not human but like if, if anybody has ever seen the movie the shack I love that movie, highly recommend it to anybody. Um, But I just said, all right, God, if you can just let me live through tonight, because because according to the laws, they couldn't even get me medical treatment until like in the morning, you know, because I I had to be arraigned before they could do anything. So (laughs) I just said, all right, God, if you will just let me live through tonight, I promise you that I will serve you. Mm. And I've done that throughout my life, odd ways, but I have served him. And then, you know, um, the next, the next part of this is really hard to admit and talk about, but I really didn't have a choice other than to go into the sex trades. Mm -hmm. I actually went, you know, one of my uncles who was another problem uncle uh took me down to lafayette louisiana and um i was able you know here i am 15 years old dancing go-go dancing in a club called the galloping jugs so even with the name of that you can only imagine yeah Yeah. and then uh, you know i found out that i could actually make money using my body instead of you know like because nobody would hire me i was too young there was nothing I could right. do to make money. And, and I'm sure the whole town knew what oh, had happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that was brutal. Cause I, after I first got out of jail, I actually tried to go back to the ninth grade. Now I, I killed him in October and I had just started the ninth grade in September. And so when I went back to school, a kid spray painted murderer on my locker Um, you know, all of the boys would come around and say things to me like, well, you're so used to doing this. Why don't you let me do it? And Uh, I mean, and it's like, you know, 
I mean, there was nowhere I could be safe in that town. Now I had one year's probation. And so So no killing for one year. Yeah, no killing for one year. Yeah. (laughs) I know, really. So such a restriction. I I know, huh? You know, it still kind of blows my mind. Like, yeah, why did I have to be on probation for a year made no sense to me? Because you were acquitted basically on self-defense. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was undeniable. I wish you could have seen the photos of me, Lita. Oh, I you couldn't I, um, even recognize who I was. I mean, it was crazy. You're you're my friend, and I don't like seeing that on strangers. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. You know, I'm so visual. Yeah. So we'll just we'll just hug little yeah, Sandra right. for a minute. All right. So anyway, so my probation was over on a Friday, and Sunday night I left town with a carnival. Oh. And um with your baby in tow. No, no, no. By then, at that point, they had taken my baby away from me. And my parents said that they didn't feel that I was mentally stable enough, emotionally stable enough to take care of my own child. So where did the baby go? He lived with my my dad and my stepmother. Dang it. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And then I came back because then I I was pregnant with my second son. And at this point, I'm 17. And Lita, I swear to God, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know how babies get made. I really do. But mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I don't know how I got pregnant with the second child. And, well, birth control uh, hasn't been incredibly reliable. Yeah, I'm not sure what better. year the, the, so the pill became reliable. But... That would have been 1971. Yeah. So I, I remember listening to something or reading something that said, you know, when the pills came out in the sixties, it wasn't really reliable. And I remember thinking, wow, I was so and so old at that point, you know, and I was born in 73. So I'm guessing late seventies is when it became really reliable. Yeah. I don't even know that it's still really reliable. Well, it's like 90 something percent where initially it was like 60% and then, you know, it was getting better and better, but yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm leaving out some parts in here that aren't important, but I ended up, um, I had, I I gave my second baby up for adoption. And after that, I had a complete 100% mental breakdown. Yeah. That was just like, I woke up, I, I was, I was watching Johnny Carson, Diana Ross. And the next thing I knew three days later, I wake up in a hospital where both of my wrists are cut. And, um, I have, I I have no idea what happened. I don't know where I'm at. I don't, I don't, I can't even speak. I had to learn how to talk. I had to learn how to walk. I had to learn how to read. I, I mean, everything. It was like, it was like, I was completely gone and reborn a whole new person Oh, at this point. That's a positive way to look at it. Reborn. That's, that's how I took it. I mean, it took me yeah. a little while to get there. I didn't even know what the word reborn meant. And you know what? The funny thing to this day is that I still can't do math. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I can use a calculator, but you know, like, like most people learn their times tables in like what the third grade or something like that. Third grade, yeah. Like I couldn't even, I can't even, like, I couldn't even do that. Like well, I, yeah, I, I have not nearly as good an excuse, but it is an interesting thing that 
again, I, I love reading different psychology things that when we've gone through extreme trauma, learning can be very difficult. And so things like grammar and math, where you have to build upon each other, when you're going through a lot of trauma, it's very hard to build those skills that go on top of each other. So that that's my excuse for being bad at math. <laughs> so if I can use that, you can. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you, girl, right there with you. So, but, but let me, let me get to the flip side of this, which is so amazing. Like I had my first company when I was eight years old, you know, I washed um, in, in base housing, we had these big bins and that's where your trash cans were underneath the carport. So I started washing those trash cans out in those bins because we had inspection every month. Right. And then I saved up my money and I bought a push mower. And then I saved up my money for mowing and washing trash cans and cleaning trash bins to an edger. So, you know, it's like I had like three, four, five little kids at work for me. It was kind of cool. <laughs> and I would like go out and sell the job and all of this. And then I during this during my childhood, I became the number one salesperson of Girl Scout cookies. Yes, you did. Like ever. <laughs> like I think I sold something like four thousand boxes of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> and so, you know, I got all these honors in Girl Scouts, right? And right. then when I was 10 years old, after my parents divorced, I worked out on this farm and I actually went to them and said, you know what? You've got a phone. You've got a party line phone. I know you, you do because you're on the party line with my grandmother. And uh, I said, you know, instead of waiting and holding all this produce and having it rot, most of it, or, or you know, never knowing, I said, why don't we just open a produce stand and call people and tell them that it's ready and they can come get it on Monday morning. And then that way they can do their canning while they're doing their wash on Monday and Tuesday. Right. So, and that, and that actually was a real produce stand up until uh, I think the late eighties, early nineties, when the kids actually sold off all the land for a subdivision. But I mean, you know, that is a big feather in my cap. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I've gone on to have this amazing career in Silicon Valley building, um, you know, software companies. And um, I was the executive founding director of the Silicon Valley Association of Software Entrepreneurs. Okay. But and we have, we, before we go into that, we have, we've left an 18 year old girl in the story here. Okay. Well, <laughs> hey, cause you woke up in the hospital. You had to learn to Oh, no, no, no. At that point, I was only, I was only 17. So 17. Okay. So you're 17. So we got to, we got to give her a little bit of where, where is she? We just left her there and everyone's like, oh, okay. So I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm like, I love that. You're like, okay, bad things happen. Let's talk about how you get there, but we got, we got to get the story. All right. So the rest of that story is, is that, um, when I went into the hospital, they had just released the first studies on LSD therapy in reintegrating what they considered splintered or split personalities. Mm -hmm. And I qualified for that study. And so I spent uh, four months in the hospital um, relearning to walk and talk and do all these things. And of course, they, they say the, the psychologists say that when you do, when you are recovering from a complete mental breakdown like that is that blocks of knowledge will come back to you 
once you engage with those blocks or those those like math and science and right. all these other things and through time it gets it's it gets stronger and stronger and so i was one of the first case studies for lsd therapy in reintegration of of uh of my personality and my ego right and right so um because even to this day you know i i have a therapist that i check in with periodically Absolutely. to yeah. see kind of like make sure i'm on the right track still healthy people have gone to therapy i have Absolutely. a therapist too i don't would um when things flare up you know with certain relationships in my life outside of my home just right i can be like okay how am I handling this? <laughs> am I exactly. doing okay? And uh, the avoidance that I think it's interesting that you were doing this when there was still a stigma against therapy, because it's been my lifetime, which, you know, I was born in 73, that I remember people that, oh, she went to therapy. So I know you had to deal with a pretty sti thick stigma on oh, every front of your life here, every front. And there weren't statistics that would have been inspiring about what you could do in your life. Yeah. You know, so. Lita, I always think of life uh, sort of like, um, you know, we all have a fence that lives in front of our house. <laughs> and what are the things that people paint on your fence? Mm, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. or murderer, um, drug, oh, dope addict, um, crazy person. Mm. Um, Oh, I could go on and on, you know, right, um, right. you know, uh, it, it, you know, slut. I mean, it's like all these things, right? Well, like I said, in 1977, I moved to California and that was really the beginning of my life. You know, uh, I had read an article in, um, I think it was the New York Times that said it, it, it listed the states that were giving free education to the residents of that state. And my mother lived in California. So I called her and said, and I was living in uh, um, uh, Virginia at the time. And I said, I would really like to come to California because I could get an education. And she said, well, you know, you come on out here because you've got to be there a year to get residency. And I did. And so I got a, um, I got my first degree actually is in um, um, theology. And so I, I have a, uh, an AA, an associate's degree in theology. And uh, now years later, I have an, M I have a BA in business and an MBA. So like know, after you already proven you could do it, you're like, yeah. I'll just go get the education for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, I, I, I just realized how, how, you know, and now, and I've been married 10 times. And, you know, people are like, what? <laughs> I love the question. How did you get 10 guys to marry you? Oh, stop. And my, and my, and my, my, my reply always is, honey, they all want to marry me. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a catch. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you, know? you move in with your mom. Was that, I mean, we use the word triggering now. You know, um, I actually, at that point, I had gone through, um, you know, I had done a lot of work, a lot of re resource work, a lot of 
you know, just um, good old fashioned therapy. I mean, I think I hold a PhD on the other side of the couch of the psychiatrist. <laughs> and, you know, I read a lot of psychology books. I don't believe that there's a self-help book that's written out there that I haven't read or done work in. I started doing workshops. But the coolest thing that I that I did was is that I, I actually went to Werner Earhart's living room and did Est in his living room. What's Est? Est is, well, nowadays it's the Landmark Education or the okay. Landmark Forum. And what, what he teaches you is that life is empty and meaningless and it's empty and meaningless. Okay. And so what that really means is, is that until you give something a meaning, it doesn't have a meaning. Okay, right. When you really want something in your life, you give your life meaning. So in other words, you have to make meaning and create the life you want. Exactly. So you have to be proactive. You can't be reactive. Exactly. And, you know, Jack Canfield, who I adore, and I, and I actually am a certified Canfield trainer. Yeah. And I'm like, is, and she knows him. Like, yeah. if there's a cool person, Sandra yes. knows him, just so y'all yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'd done work with Tony Robbins before that in NLP. So, yeah. you know, but the cool thing about Jack is that Jack teaches... E plus R equals O. Event plus response equals your outcome. Right. And when you really begin to take responsibility for your life, you know, a lot of people always want to say that that everything happens externally. It doesn't. <laughs> you know, E plus R equals O. It's right. how you respond to anything in your life that determines what happens and the amount of responsibility that you're willing to take for your life is the real determining factor of how Preach your life it. turns out. Yes. And that's yeah. what I talk about in love me too, is, you know, identifying responsibility is one part of being like, okay, what's my part? Because if it's only 1% of my having a bad reaction to this, you get to work on that 1%. Exactly. But abuse is hundred percent, the responsibility of the person who perpetrated that However, you still have a mess in your life and you have to figure out how to clean that up in your life. And you can go chase after them, try to get them to fix it. It's not going to happen. And you're giving up your power again. It becomes a second form of abuse. Now you're complicit in. So I, I love and agree with this so much. And I just want to like make sure the listeners are getting it. That if you're sitting there being like, I have this excuse and this reason, and I couldn't do this and all that. Here's my friend, Sandra. Who's like, okay, whatever. I just give you enough facts of the story. Like we're all like, ah, 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 that does not live an excuse and made a thriving life. And I just, you know, amazing. I remember, you know, do you remember the event we met at? Yes, I do. Okay. And it was the lady who we shouldn't say her name. Yeah. we shouldn't she, say The what? Yeah. We shouldn't say it. Yeah. We shouldn't say it. And she was going around and, um, I can't remember what she's called. Like she's like a reads um, people's like future or something. It wasn't like a fortune teller, but it was kind of like she reads your aura or something like that. Yeah. And you were like, no, you make it yourself. You make it happen yourself. Like you go do this. And when she was giving people kind of some negative feedback, you know, of their life, you were, you were kind of like, you know, and you, you told me after you're like, okay, those are good things that she said, but you 
It's you. It's you who's going to make that happen. It's you who's going to do this. Your skills don't give stock to someone outside of you, including other people, you know, that you, you make your life and you have what you need to do that. And it was like, really? You think so? (laughs) Because I was so at that point in my life wanting, um, positive female role models. And you stepped in to do that without agenda. And so I owe you a huge, a huge debt because, um, you know, people would see my skills and want to use them for their benefit and you without any, you know, empty hands, just like, I'm just going to cheer you on. So thank you. And so you're in a lineup of, of healthy women that I can, you know, connect the dots that have been there for me. And the more I hear about your story, um, the more I'm like, yeah, let's go get it. (laughs) I love you, Lita. I love you. The bigger part of this is, is that um, because of the training that I'd done and because of the work that I had done, I was actually able to forgive my mother a hundred percent and my father and my uncles and everybody involved. And, you know, I think that most people don't realize that forgiveness for yourself and forgiveness for others is like the greatest key. Yes. Yes. I, I'm, I'm like, preach it again, because we, as I jokingly say it sometimes is we just need to release people to the wild. Yeah. You know, just you're not in charge of what happens next for them. Well, and, and on top of that is that anytime you harbor ill will or bad feelings or unforgiveness towards somebody else, right. The only person it affects is you. Right. Cause they're not going around going, Oh, I wonder how they feel. And even if they are, um, again, it goes back to those without an agenda. Right. Exactly. And just releasing them. And if it's, you know, a spiritual aspect, you know, let God work that out. Um, I, I have a little saying that I say, I hope I have enough faith in God that when I go to heaven and I see people that, you know, like the man that molested me, that I will trust God enough to know he did the work to get there. And that that, that's okay with me, but to just be like, you know what, I don't have to hang out with you and I don't even have to be on the same side of heaven but I have to trust God enough to know that you paid the price. And I hope in my heart that I could go over and say, I'm so glad you made it. That's amazing. Lita. That, that I'm is not, I'm not, I can't visualize that quite yet with a lot of people, but I'm, I'm working on it, but that's my goal. Well, just remember, just remember to forgive yourself. That's yeah. the important thing. No, I just don't want to hang out with poopiness, but. (laughs) And you know what? That's a, that is a really, another point that's really important. You are the sum of the people that you, that you are the sum of the five people you spend most of your time with. And I think that it's really important to frequently do an inventory of the people that you're hanging out with. Like no joke. And you know what, if they're not adding to you and adding to your life, if they don't bring you joy and, and everything else, if they're bringing you down, if they're sucking your energy, get rid of them. Yeah. And you know what? I, I have people in my life, my family, and I just limit interactions with them. I just right. don't, 
you know, I, I do what I need to do with them, but outside of that, I don't need to do anything. And that's okay. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. That's okay. I, you know, this, uh, blood, you know, family's thicker than blood. Um, you know, you, you know, we've left, uh, you with your working on your AA with your mom, you know, um, who needs to be in AA. <laughs> see, see how I made that joke, you know, your social degree and alcoholics yeah. anonymous, but you know, you, um, you had forgiven her enough to that point to find that it could be a, a resource and a support to have her there and to work through that. So she wasn't a demon in your life that you had to run from, which is exactly. a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, the, the power of working on ourselves so that we can create that network around ourselves that lifts us up and inspires us and makes us want to be better. And, you know, you, you've kind of done some therapy for me. We won't go into it on this call, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, a particular relationship that I grieved. You're like, okay, Lita, you got what you need. Come on, let's go for it. Come on, you know, and encouraged me. And yet never was like, you're stupid for having those feelings. No, not at all. Right. You know what, Lita, I want everybody to know that the life, the life you want, wants you. I love that. Uh, that's life one of my favorite wants. things. Yeah. Is that, is that a Sandra Grace or I love oh, that? I'm sure it's in a, yeah, I, I'm sure it's from somebody wise said it before me. I'm, I don't know who it is right out, right off the hand, but. Well, I'm going to credit uh, it to you. Please do. I don't yeah. think it's, but anyway, I honestly believe that what you want wants you. And that is a Jack Canfield thing, but you know, um, I, I just know that the life that you want is waiting for you. It's just waiting for you to step into it. It's waiting for you to, to make the decision that, that, that it's, that it's what you want. And, you know, the thing I love more than anything on the planet is that God desires everything for us. And I, and I'm not a religious person, so let me be really clear, but I do know that I've never wanted anything that I didn't get. Right. Despite where you came from. And I, this is such a powerful lesson because we waste, I think so much time, you know, being angry about what happened and we, we don't have to be mad at ourselves because we have to process things. We have to do the work. We have to go through the journey. You can't just flip a switch. Right. But we waste so much time and energy into what should have happened in quotation marks, instead of thinking, what should I do now? Well, you know what? what? I think everybody should get rid of should and stop shooting on themselves (laughs) Yep. because there's no such thing as should. Right. You know, I, I, I love the star Wars quote that Yoda says, there is no try. There is only do. Yeah. And you either do it or you don't. And, you know, I, and I, I have a girlfriend, her name is Marianne Rodmacher. Look her up, people, because um, she is a phenomenal author. She's got, I don't know, 19 books out there, but she has this saying about courage. And she says, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's the quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I will try again tomorrow. Yes. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. I will just keep going. And Um, you know, so the whole mental health thing you went through, I love how you talked about that being reborn. And I've, I've looked at different times in my life where I've been physically put down, you know, because of bed rest or injury or something. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, how, what pieces 
like my life is Lego pieces. I'm going to put this block back in. I'm going to put this block back in. And, um, you know, the world is going through a, how do we remake ourselves after the pandemic? And the, the mental health crisis, I just read something from the New York Times that 60% of youth are, went from 19% of youth to 60% of youth are having mental health struggles. And, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty daunting to think yeah, about really really how um, impacted our kids are. And I can't help but correlate, and I would love your input on this, that, you know, we've grown up in a time where I think maybe my generation um, it wasn't my childhood experience, but, you know, my peers and kind of what you see in parenting, you know, don't say no to a child, you know, basically you got to entertain the kid and how that is undermined. I see your little smirk, how that is undermining kids ability to be resilient people. So I'm handing that question, that comment to you. All right. So, um, I, you know what, I believe that every child needs to be taught boundaries. And I mean, even if you don't hit your kid, even if you don't spank your kid, I think that you still need to have rules of engagement for consequences. Right. Now spanking, I don't know. I, I spanked my kid and he actually thanked me for it. So, you know, he I goes, was spanked. And I, I'm not sure if um, I'd be thankful for it, but I'm because it wasn't always tied to um, it. It what it it wasn't something I could predict. Yeah, you know, like I didn't do something wrong to get spanked, you know. But I do appreciate that, um, even if I don't always agree in my adult mind with why there were consequences, I'm appreciative that there were. Right. So I think that saying perhaps this way is that. You know, I think that parenting, one of the big rules of parenting is like conscious decisions around how you're going to teach your children yeah. the parameters and the boundaries. Intentional parenting, which it goes exactly. back to the proactive versus reactive. Exactly. And I think yeah. parents today are a lot more, you know, they have a lot more information than we had. They had a lot more information than our parents had. Right. Uh, and if you, and I always think that when you look at something, you have to look at it generationally. Like you can't just say, oh, my grandma was mean. You have to go back and understand, yep. you know, like what, you know, like each person had a life that they lived. And what were the, what were the obstacles and problems that they had to overcome? Absolutely. What made that, what made that grandma strong or mean or angry or what made our moms angry? I mean, our mothers, um, yeah, I think I'm old enough to be your mom. I'm 68. So I'm, I'm old 40, enough. I'm 48. And if you'd yeah, have I'm me old 14, your you're mom. definitely, I mean, 20, yeah. Yeah. both of us have confessed our math is not strong, but that's the 20 year difference. Right. Exactly. So I would have been your third kid. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other part of that is that, you know, I think that needing to understand like in the fifties, when my mother was, you know, my mother was born in the forties, the late forties yeah. wow. and women that became, became of age in the fifties, they were exposed to a whole different paradigm than, I mean, you know, 
one cool thing about every generation of people is that we were all exposed to historical things that determine how their children turn out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know. So, you know, it's like you know, the Bible says what is it? Spare the rod and spoil the child or something like that or beat the hell out of them and I think that was a cultural context of the time. Yeah. That's not one of the verses I take literally. <laughs> yeah, me either, but I'm just you know, it's like it's I'm just saying it's like okay. But, you know, Lita, I think that one of the things that we all need to consider is that everybody's different. Everybody has been exposed to a different set of circumstances or atrocities. You know, yeah. what we what we would consider a, a, an atrocity, someone else might not. I mean, imagine all the things that are going on in the world right now and imagine how how resilience comes to play into all of this now. You know, we, we are looking at something going on in Europe that we pray to God never happens in the United States. Yeah. And we, and, and we are naive to believe that, that, we, that may never happen to us. And so I'm saying- It's because we've lived world. in the longest period of peace the world has ever experienced in our side of the world. Exactly. There's been conflicts our whole entire life, but they, we've been exposed to movies and it seems like a movie that we're watching. Exactly. Instead of those are real people. I mean, during 2020, there was a war in Armenia that was just as, you know, hideous, but because we had no political interests or financial ties to that country, people looked over it. But I had friends there from what, having gone to work there as a speaker and so I was pretty upset because I'm worried about the safety of my friends because it became real to me. But exactly. like, you know, I know women in, in, um, you know, in the, in South America that, you know, have gone through torture and rape for centuries and Africa. And I mean, we could get off. This is a whole like 400 million different conversations. We could talk about this, but you know, the one thing I think that if I, if I could say one thing to anybody, I want everybody to know that resiliency and the ability to overcome can happen for anybody if they have the, if they have the desire. And, you know, mm -hmm. being, a, being a resiliency consultant is a job that I absolutely love. And I, I actually am in the process right now of completely rebranding everything I'm doing and you know, Lita, I, I, I want to tell you, it actually all started with your book, Love Me Too. What? I had never, ever given my story or anything else, any, any outward conversation until I read your book. When, remember, oh. we, were at, we were at a, 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 a gathering and you gave me your book and I still have it. And I read your book and I said, if Lita can talk about this, I can talk about mine too. I had no idea. It's true. I swear to God, it's true. I no, I, I know you wouldn't say it if it weren't true. Um, I am humbled. And I'll tell you that, you know, I was so upset with the messaging that we are victims. And somehow, you know, once somebody has crossed a certain line with you that you cannot become better. I was so upset with that messaging that we were having with the Me Too movement that I was like, I put up this post and then I took it down and 
And then God was like, do it, do it. I mean, it was like, everything was like, I got to put this up and it blew things up. So it wasn't even something that I can take full credit for. And, you know, I paid a price in my personal life. There are people that didn't like that I did that. But at the end of the day, I am proud of that book and its message because I know I had my heavenly muse helping me do it. And I can, I can go to my grave knowing that the messages I put out in the world are helping people. And I'm honored that it helps you stand up and speak out because the more that you and I, and you know, the millions and billions of other women on this planet. And I mean that literally that are dealing with trauma, the more that we can say, I've had that. And look how, look at what I'm doing helps the other girl and the other woman and, and the boys and men that are going through things as well. Just statistically it's typically more women and girls, but that we can make a great life. And there's nothing like you said, that can happen to us that we can't overcome. Exactly. And, and you know what, it's always about, it's always about what work are you willing to do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because there's that, no um, easy button. That's the defining line between victim and survivor. Yep. There's no easy button and people want it to be easy. People want it to be coming to them like entertainment, right? Yep. And yet you got to do the work and it's hard and it's ugly, but not always, but it doesn't have yeah. to be Lita. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be. Well, good. <laughs> you, can make, no, you can make an ugly thing beautiful by choice. No, I'm saying the work. Getting oh yeah, it. yeah. The work. I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. You are correct. Okay. The work can be hard. The work can be ugly, and it can be painful. Yeah. But, it's but on it. the other side, it's worth it's, it. It's it's so worth it. And I think we we don't want to let go of what we liked about ourselves before, and we have to have. There's a certain amount of faith in relinquishing that to become the the renewed, the reborn, like you were talking about through your breakdown and through your story, you know? So, oh my heavens, Sandra, you are such a powerhouse. And I know I want to have you on again. I'm sure that my listeners are going to be like, we could have had three more hours of Sandra, but (laughs) you know, they could only be so long. And um, thank you for the inspiration. You are my life. And I know that you've inspired others. And I'm just, I'm going to go tell my husband and be like, you got to hear what Sandra said. So thank you. you. it's a thrill to me because I look up to you and I appreciate um, you seeing in me in a time that I needed it. And I'm sure you've done that for many people because hard things do give us eyes to see. Awesome. Well, I hope that uh, we get to talk again soon. And uh, Lita, thank you so much. Thank you, Sandra, for being on this episode of Share Your Hotness. The Share Your Hotness podcast is produced by Van Garrett Media. Lita Green is the host and creator of the podcast. Chris Van Garrett is the editor, producer, and music director. Shayla Dawn is our research coordinator. Join us next week for another episode of the Share Your Hotness podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media.